Well, amen. You guys know how to worship, that's for sure. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. I've been looking forward to being at Hope. I've heard about Hope for years. And just so that you know, in the South, you're very well known. You really are. You're known for one because of your pastor, Vance Pittman, is one of the most really incredible, gifted preachers in the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, I know you know that, but also you're known for what you are and what you do. Because uh, what we're wanting to do at the North American Mission Board is really you. You began almost 10 years ago, and then in turn, you have planted church after church uh, throughout Las Vegas and the West. And that's what we want to do through churches literally all over North America. And so uh, it's just an honor to be here. And on behalf of Southern Baptists everywhere, there are 45,000 Southern Baptist churches. And if we could have those churches model what you do, uh, what, what a difference that would be made in North America. So thank you, okay? Hey, I, I want to share with you out of Acts chapter 20 today about a missions legacy. And you're a part of a missions church. If you're a part of this church, you're known to be a missions church. And what a blessing to, to see a couple flying out today to another country, another couple being dedicated today. That's what it's all about, a missions legacy. But what is your specific missions legacy. You're at danger when you're in a missions church that you can just kind of get um, lost in the crowd or snuggle in a very secure place where you're a part of something, but you yourself, you don't have a specific assignment. We're going to talk about what it is your missions legacy. Why does it matter that you're even here? Now, Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 is where we're going to be, but as you turn there, if you don't mind, um, I want, to, I want to introduce my family. They're not with me, but just real fast, so you kind of get an idea of where I'm coming from. I have six children. I have a wife. been married a over 25 years. I have six children. I have uh, two daughters in college um, that are in the top, obviously on both corners of the top. I have a son that's 16 in the middle. His name's Taylor. And then we have on the far left, that is Libby. We adopted Libby eight years ago. Uh, she's from China. They found her in a shoebox outside of a police station uh, right after she was born. And we've been blessed with her for eight years. She is a sweetheart. We love her. She's a, a, a real blessing to our family. Her name's Libby. And then on the far right-hand side, that is Michaelin. Now, when you meet her, you need to say it just like that, or, or she'll let you know about it. It's Michaelin. And, and she has her hand on her hip because that's typically where it is, all right? She's just that way. She's a little bossy. We got her when she was three from Ethiopia, and she is now seven. Now, now I'm going to date myself here, but some of you remember the, the show uh, Sanford and Son. Remember that, that show? Well, we adopted Aunt Esther, okay? I mean, she comes in, and she will just tell you exactly how it's supposed to be. And now, we... We just moved from Louisville, Kentucky to uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, outside Atlanta, and, and basically have very few friends, okay? You know how it is when you move here. If you just recently moved here, hey, I can identify. It's just hard. We've lived somewhere for 14 years. We left our friends there. We moved here, and it just takes a while. And so we have to meet our neighbors, get to know our neighbors. We really don't know them that well, but finally we felt like we knew some of the neighbors well enough to let Michael Lynn go inside the house to play with the little girls. And Michael Lynn marches in there, as she typically does. She'll take over any size room and puts her hand on her hip and looks around. She says, you people have issues. The neighbor had to ask and said, uh, well, Michael Lynn, what do you mean? She says, your house is a mess. You have issues. 
Like, oh my word, nightmare, you know? So we bring, the neighbor thinks it's funny, I, I, I hope, and she brings her, we bring her back and we set her down and say, Michael Ann, you don't, we just don't say things like that, sweetheart. I mean, mommy and daddy, we don't have any friends and you're not helping, all right, please, no. <laughs> and so that's just how, that's just how she is. And then uh, we have uh, J.M. there at my knees. J.M. is John Michael. He goes by J.M. or J. or just, if you... I call him anything, he'll come. He's a wonderful little boy. He's 12. We got him when he was 11. We got him a year ago, February, and uh, he's from the Philippines. And it's, he's been a real incredible blessing uh, uh, to our life. It's pretty funny. When you look at our family with six kids from four different countries, I mean, we do typically draw some attention when we walk into a restaurant, all right? And it's a, a little odd. People will go, well, that is so sweet. They'll say in their very southern tone, well, bless your heart. And I'll say, no, I don't bless my heart. I'm just competitive. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, when we watch the Olympics, we win. <laughs> Celebration in our house every night. Not a problem. And so uh, it is, uh, it is a, a little unique. But interesting, when we picked up uh, J.M. at the orphanage, he had about 80 kids in the orphanage, one basketball, one ball goal. And uh, it, it was interesting when they told us, they said, now when you take J.M. back to the hotel, you need to be very careful because he's not used to some of the luxuries that you're used to. Uh, and I said, well, like what? Luxuries? And they said, well, like hot water. We don't have hot water in the orphanage. Now they have it. I realize they have it in certain parts of of, of Manila in the Philippines, but not in this orphanage. And she said, he's never felt that. And so we go back to the hotel and, and uh, hang out for a little while, getting used to uh, being there. And then uh, uh, it came time for bed or bath, and we went in the, the restroom, and I said, hey, look, Jay, I want you to put your hand on the faucet. And I started running the water lukewarm. And then I just gradually, gradually turned the water warmer and warmer and warmer. I'll never forget looking in his face as I turned that faucet warmer and warmer, and he began to experience hot water for the very first time. It was incredible to watch his eyes light up, and he said, that is wonderful. And I said, it is wonderful. And so I said, now you're going to take a shower. I had to explain to him what a shower was. It's amazing the things you have to explain when they're not used to it. It's like the first time we went out to eat and I've ordered him chicken fingers. He goes, oh, no, 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 I not eat chicken fingers. They're not really chicken fingers. He said, well, then why do they call them chicken fingers? I don't know. Just eat the things, all right? Dip them in ketchup. <laughs> first time we had buffalo wings, you can only imagine that conversation. But he gets in the shower, and 45 minutes later, he comes out. Loved the shower. You know, so often we get used to certain things. We get so used to it that we take it for granted. And we just don't think twice about it. Um, let me give you an example. Say, um, uh, hey, sir. Right there. Yeah, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, if you don't, sorry. Not a trick question, all right? You look like a clean guy. Uh, you had a shower in the last 24, 48 hours. Looks like it. All right. Now, 
When you got in the shower, did you like, yes, hot water? That's what I thought. Spoiled American right there, spoiled American. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this man is what's wrong with America right here. <laughs> we get used to certain things, and we just don't think twice about it. It's in every area of our life. Even when it comes to churches, you're very blessed said to be a part of hope. And I've driven around uh, this particular part. It's just gorgeous, the mountains and all. But you can see a church here and drive it a little bit longer. See a church, not as many as in the south. There's a lot of those, but still, there are churches there. And we get used to the comforts of coming here. But it's not like that way. It's not like it is here everywhere. Let me give you for an example. All right, let's just take the south, start there, and start with Mississippi. Everybody likes to pick on Mississippi, and we'll be no different. All right? There is one church in Mississippi, one Southern Baptist church in Mississippi for every 1,375 people. Most missiologists will tell you that ideally you want to shoot from one church for every one to 2,000 people, if possible. All right? So one for every 1,375. What's it like in Nevada? It's one church for every 12,769. All right? And again, not as many in Mississippi, but you're, you're blessed. That's not a really bad ratio. But let me give you an idea of what it's like in other parts of even North America. In New York, there's one church for every 59,760 people. In New Jersey, it's one church for every 76,000 people. But watch this. In Canada, one church for every 121,000 people. I was just in Calgary, and you can drive literally three hours and not drive by another evangelical church. It's just incredible. The darkness in places like Montreal and Toronto. Incredible. What the North American Mission Board does is we find churches like yours that are interested in planting churches. And we say, hey, look. You're planting a church in Tucson. You're going to plant a church in Salt Lake City. You're planting one. What if we come along beside you and help you plant two or maybe four? And so we're about partnering with churches to plant churches. And uh, not every church has that mindset. And they're willing to, a lot of them are willing to give resources so that we can invest in churches that do so they can plant those churches. That's what we do. And so thank you. For all that you do. I want you to see, though, in Acts chapter 20, how you play a role. Let me ask you this. What difference will it make when all is said and done that you existed? God placed you here for more than just drawing a breath and drawing a salary. There is a reason, a specific reason, that God has changed your heart, even has you here today. What is that? You see, I believe every one of us have a mission's legacy. Now, in Acts chapter 20, it's a unique passage. We're going to start in verse 17. Let me summarize it just real quickly as we read through it. It'll help a little bit. The Apostle Paul sends for his leadership team, the elders in the church at Ephesus. He says, I want you guys to meet me. And he tells them exactly where to meet him. And when he gets there, they get in a huddle and say, Now, listen, fellas, here's what's going down. God has told me to go to Jerusalem, to go back to Jerusalem. 
He's also let me know that it's not going to be very easy. It's going to be difficult. It's, this is not really best for me personally in a sense. It's going to be very harsh. I'm going to be put into prison, shackles. I'm going to be beaten. It's going to be very difficult, but God has told me to go there. That's what he wants me to do, and I must be obedient to what he wants me to do. So I'm going to leave. You're going to be left here. And here's some things you need to remember while I'm gone. He tells them some things to do. But I want you, as we read through this passage, I want you to put yourself in this place as we process and make decisions on what we're going to do with our life. Think about the precious couples up here just a moment ago trying to decide exactly what to do to to leave the comforts of a church like this. It's been easier to stay. A couple on a plane today going to another country, it's easier to stay here. But sometimes when we make decisions on even how we serve in this church, it'd be easier to do this or it's more demanding to do that. When it comes to what even you give here at Hope, what do you just give what's easiest or do you actually sacrificially give in a way that God could bless you? There's a whole nother plateau, a whole nother echelon of, of, uh, in your spiritual walk that we miss out. Because we, we become a part of a missions movement, but not specifically what it is God has for us to do. I want you to process it like that, like that Paul did. Let's just read through here and see how he processed it and learned from it, okay? It's about being obedient. Look at verse 17. It says this. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now let's just stop there and then we'll proceed on. Notice what he says. You yourself know me and how I lived among you the whole time I was there. You know my reputation. You know all about me. You know what I stood for. You know me. Think about it. If I were to come and perhaps just interview the person to your right or to the left and say, Hey, tell me about them. Tell me what, tell me what they're like. Or go to the people you work with or people you go to school with and say, Tell me about them. Tell me about them. What would they say? I mean, what is it you're known what is it that you're here? I, I've pastored for many years. I pastored in Louisville for 14 years, and I love pastoring. I miss it terribly. And you're there in weddings, and also you do funerals. And when you do funerals, there's, a, there's, a, there's some, there's some uh, tricks to the trade or some tips that every pastor needs to learn, all right? What I mean is sometimes you're called upon to do funerals of people that are distant relatives of members. And they say, hey, would you mind doing a funeral for my aunt or my father? And you don't know him, but would you do it? And, and obviously you want to help minister to the family. And says, sure, but you're going to have to tell me some things about him. Now what's interesting is you do this, and you need to write this down in case you're ever called upon to do a funeral, all right? Here's some tips on how to do it. For you simply asked about some family facts. But I want, what I want, to, I want you to see is 95% of the time, people describe their family the same way. No matter who it is. The names are changed, but it's the same. So let's just say Uncle Jim. All right, Uncle Jim's passed away. I come in and say, well, tell me about Uncle Jim. To which they will respond, he was a good man. A good man. 
Now, I get a kick out of that because they always say he was a, and they'll hold it out, good man. Now, that should be comforting to you to know that when you die, your relatives round up, all right? I've never had anyone say, well, he was a bad man, a bad man. I've never had that said, never, never. They always round up, says, I go with it, that's okay, he was a good man. Oh, that's right. He loved his family. Those girls had him wrapped around their finger, and he was a hard worker. Worked hard. Worked 35 years, 40 years. Got a watch. Got a plaque. They go through all that, and then he'll say, typically, insert sports team or hobby. They'll say, boy, he was a running rebel fan, or he was a Cats fan, or he was a this fan or that fan, and, well, that pretty well sums it up. I'm thinking, the dude was 85, all right? It's four and a half minutes long, and that's it. Now, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking, hey, he lived 85 years. We just summarized this, this fellow's life in four and a half minutes. So I go back to the family, same sitting. I say, well, tell me anything else to go on, because I'm thinking, you don't give me anything else to go on? we got to add some songs, all right? Because this is going to be the shortest funeral you've ever been to. I mean, roll him in, roll him out, we're done. I mean, I say it can't work that way. <laughs> hey, it's just the way it goes. You know that. You've been there. And they'll, they'll repeat it. Well, he really was a good man. And I thought, you know, how sad. How sad to live your whole life and to be able to summarize it that. And that, that all your life you live for, ultimately, and it's good to have a work ethic and be loyal to a company, but for a watch or a plaque, I mean, is that it? When you think of the things that you value the most, the things right now you think, man, if I could only get that, or I'm pursuing, that's what I'm focused on. My, all the energies of my life are focused on getting this. Or I'm going to do it out time with my family so I can get this position. Have you ever put a stopwatch to that? President and CEO of IBM. Takes about 4.2 seconds. President of the United States of America. Takes about 8 seconds. You ever timed out those things that mean so important? You can tell how long your funeral is going to be. We'll talk about it. We'll draw it out a little bit. But ultimately, does it matter that you were here? What I want you to see today is that God has a much, 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 much bigger purpose for you. Wherever you may be planted, if it's in a school, a factory, a business, wherever it may be, God has a reason and a much greater purpose for you than drawing a breath or drawing a salary. Now notice what the Apostle Paul said. He said, I served you with humility. I love that. Humility comes from a word that means bond slave. Paul says, I served you with humility. Why did he serve with humility? And why should we serve with humility? Paul realized that actually every gift, every ability he had came from God. Every ability, every talent, every gift comes from God. And when we realize that, there's no area for arrogance or ego. Because it's from him. Paul says, I, every open door, every opportunity comes from God. So I served with humility, but I also served with tears. I love that because Paul engaged with people at a level where it hurt. Where it hurt. You know what we're prone to do? Is we engage with people, we try to connect with people and have relationships with people until they hurt us 
mess on us a little bit, and then we pull back and we insulate and we isolate ourselves to any pains or hurts. And what we say to ourselves, look, that'll not happen to me again. That will not happen to me again. That's the last time that will. And we insulate, isolate, put up those fences. You see, all part of ministry is investing in people and taking a risk to love them, even when they may not love you back or even when nothing ever may come back from it. That's what Jesus did. Paul says, I served with humility and tears. But also, you know what he said? I served, you know some of the challenges I went through, the plots of the Jews. He said, you know, there were people that were fighting me the whole time. You guys know that. You know what that tells me? That sometimes you can be exactly where you need to be. Exactly where God wants you to be and people will oppose you. They're not always going to be cheering you on when you're right exactly where. You know what's interesting? This is Acts chapter 20. Later on this afternoon. It's all preseason games anyway. Take the time to read Acts chapter 21, 22, 23. And in the Acts 21, 22, and 23, you'll see some very good, godly people try to talk the Apostle Paul out of doing what it was that God told him to do. And they're saying, don't do that, my word. It's dangerous. You go there, you might get killed. My word, you go there, it's not going to be financially uh, beneficial to you. You go there, it's going to mess your entire life up. Don't do that. They're trying to talk him out of doing exactly what God said to do. So don't be under the illusion that when you're right in the center of God's will, doing what he wants you to do, that everybody's going to... uh, I appreciate that's not the case. All right, let's move on and see uh, as we read on. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? I consistently shared the gospel from house to house regardless of who was in it. Didn't matter what they looked like, where they're from, I consistently with everyone shared the gospel, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me, Bonds means imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and ministry, which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I want us to go back, and can you leave that back? There you go. I want us to read, just read through that verse together, all right? I want you to make sure we really, really let this uh, marinate in our mind if you will, because this is much easier said and much easier cross-stitched than it is lived, all right? Now think about it. You ready? Here we go. You read with me? But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and ministry, which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Every one of you, if you're a Christian today, were saved so that God might use you and minister and that you might complete the task the Lord Jesus has given you. But I want you to notice what he said. I 
consider my life worth nothing to me. All right? Think about that. I consider my life worth nothing to me. It's not trying to get your life to where it's less than. It's to consider your life worth nothing to me. People say, well, you're going to throw your life away doing. It's not yours. You've been bought with a price. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to him. Well, it's not yours. But in my opinion, it's not even your opinion. It's all about him. All of those negotiation tools. But if I were to do that, that would cost me. I consider my life worth nothing to me. But that I might finish the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Man, I love how Paul calculated. And notice he had the advantage of, he was told ahead of time, impressed upon his heart, you go there, you're going to get put in prison. You go there, you're going to get beaten up. You go there, it's not going to be financially beneficial. I mean, we really don't know all. We're excited about you going to Minneapolis. But you haven't been told ahead of time how the next year is going to go. Or two or three years is going to go. Can you imagine? He said, look, I want you to go there. But six months after you get there, you're going to get arrested. For, for sharing the gospel. I mean, my word, you won't stop sharing your faith here. What's going to say you're not going to stop there? You shared the gospel, we're going to put you in prison. We're going to, we're going to beat you up for that. You know what, you imagine... Paul knew that and went anyway. How do we think through those things? Okay, if we do this, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. We would say, no way. What is plan B? Now, God, I'm open to be obedient, but show me the other options. Because I need something that's going to, well, I mean, everyone's got to consider retirement. We've got to take care of certain needs, and we've all got to do, and we have all these reasons that we need option B and option C. I'm thankful there are missionaries all over the world today that went with option A. And that's to be obedient regardless. Let's read on and see what else he says. Um, He says, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I've made use of my time here, I've been faithful to preach the gospel. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves. I want you to watch this. Here's where he transitions and he says, that I'm going now. Now look, fellas. It's kind of like when you're, you're going out for the night and you're telling your teenage kids, now look, there's some things you don't need to do and there's some things you need to do. And here's it, here it is. So he says, look, I'm going to be gone. Here's what you need to do. Be on guard or guard yourselves for the and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, with his, which he purchased with his own blood. Notice what he says. Several different things. One, you guard your hearts. Guard yourself. Then he says, guard the flock. And then he said there were savage wolves that will come in and attack. Notice, notice um, the, the concentric circles of protection, if you will. What's the very first thing he tells them? You guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't worry about everybody else. You guard your heart. You start there. Guard your heart. Protect it. Then he said, there's going to be challenges in the flock. You guard the flock. 
And then you watch out for the attacks from the outside. But guard your heart. You know why that's important? We know 35 years later from when he said guard your heart, 35 years later. You go to the church at Ephesus. Jesus wrote them a letter. We have it in Revelation chapter 2. Letter to the church at Ephesus. And what did he say to them? I have this one thing against you. You've lost your first love. You see, the reason it's so easy to get off the path of obedience, the reason it's so easy to go for option B and C and not worry about it is because we do not guard our hearts, we lose our first love, and then we just drift to what we want to do instead of what He wants to do. Oh, may, may God make us a people of option A of what He desires. Well, let me tell you how it finishes. If you read out the rest of this, He tells them some things that they need to do. But then what's interesting, in the very last three verses of, of this chapter, they get together and they all pray. And then they get up, and it says, when they got up from praying, it says they wept. And that word there is not tear up. These men were overcome with grief. Why? Because, the Bible says, because of what he said, that they would never see his face again. You know what it tells me? Paul had so bonded with these guys. They had such an affection and a love for one another, a respect for one another. They didn't say they wept because they'd never hear him preach again. They didn't say they wept because they'd never hear him teach again. They said they wept because they wouldn't see his face again. And then it says they walked him back to the ship and saw him off as he went on his way to Jerusalem. You're so, you're so blessed here. You know what was fun last night and this morning? Vance haven't been gone for the last month. Is watching you guys see him for the first time in a couple weeks. And somebody hit him on the shoulder, you know, messing with him. Some of you hugged him, messed with his hair. I mean, just picking on him because you love him. And you know what was really fun for me is last night we had the opportunity to, to go out and eat because his family's so tired of him. They, they told him to stay out of the house. And, uh, and you know what? He couldn't shut up talking about you and how much he loves you. That doesn't happen everywhere. And I want you to know, when you're not around, he talks, uh, he talks highly of you and brags on you all over North America. That's beautiful to see. And you know, that's not because of how he preaches or how he teaches. It's because you have grown to love one another. That's how it should be. In order for God to use us the way he desires to use us, we have to open ourselves and be willing to risk connecting with people and being what the church is really called to be. You know what's so sweet about these couples that are coming out is, man, you're, you're not the end, but, but, but you're the means by which God just uses people here to go live to the ends of the earth being obedient. What I want to encourage you today is some of you, God's going to leave here to be part of the mechanism, the machine that just that's encourages people and sends them all over. But what is it God could use you to do here? Obediently, you're not doing, not just going through the motions week to week, but what is it He can use you to do? 
When all is said and done, why will it matter that you are here? Man, God has a purpose for you. It is so vital, so important for you to be obedient to what that is. There's more to life than drawing a breath and drawing a salary. There's something significant God wants you to do right here. When uh, we went to pick up JM in Manila, he took that 45-minute shower. And when he came out, of course, he was smelling good and we tucked him into bed the first night. You know, we've been together, and, and uh, I reached down, and I grabbed him really tight, hugged him really tight. I said, I love you, buddy. And he said, I love you too, Dad. First time I'd ever heard him say that. But then I'll never forget what happened next. He, he took his, his little hands, and he pushed on my face on both sides. So that my face would look right into his and those big brown Filipino eyes. And he said, I will be a good son for you. And that's what I did. Like, well, I'll be a I'll be a good dad for you. He said, okay. <laughs> Next morning. At four in the morning, his face is right here. <laughs> Good morning, Dad. Just in case you did not realize it, bad breath is universal, all right? <laughs> like, whoa. Four in the morning. You see, in the Philippines, in the orphanage, they would get up at four. They'd do chores from four to five, have breakfast from five to 5.30, and go to school at six, all right? Sir, I'm just curious. Uh, what time did you get up this morning? Was it? About seven. That's what I thought. <laughs> Problem of America right here. <laughs> I'm just teasing, sort of. Just a little kill. If you ever adopt children from another country, this is an issue that you will have to deal with. But it will take you at least three to four months to teach them to be lazy. It really will. Am I right? <laughs> they learn. But you just got to hang in there. And your other, your, your other children will model it. And they eventually they fall in line. But he said, good morning, Dad. And I said, good morning, Jay. He said, I will be a good son for you today. I said, well, I'll be a good dad for you today. That night, same thing. The next morning, same thing. The next night, same thing. And every time, it was just like a dagger in my heart. It was sweet, it was cute, and precious, but, oh, it's just killing me. I thought, I can't go through life this way every day. I mean, he's got to learn. Because I could tell he felt like I was loving him because of how he was performing. He was going to be an obedient son. And so I set him down. I said, listen, J.M., Hey, I want you to know, I'm thankful you want to be a good son for me today. And uh, we want you to be a good boy. We do. And I'm going to be a good dad for you. But you need to understand, I love you not because you're a good boy. I love you today not because of all that you've done today. I love you because you're a part of our forever family. 
You're always going to be a part of our family. It's not based on how good you do today. We want you to be a good boy, but it's not based on that. You're always going to be a part of our forever family. Do you understand that? He said, yes, sir. But I will be a good boy for you today. (laughs) You know, I began to think of what it would be like if every believer in every church all over the world would wake up every morning, go to bed every night with the one intent of I will be a good son for you today. I'll be a good daughter for you today. The reason I exist would be in Zambia, Minnesota, or Nevada. Is be a good son for you today. It's really all about obedience. It's not about what you're doing, where you're doing it. It's about who you're doing it for.